Well, good evening, church. It's good to be back with you guys. We, uh, we're going to move on from the topic of the last couple of weeks. There's still lots of gaps to fill there. There's still a lot of things to talk about. Nevertheless, I think um, it's probably good at this point for us to transition to kind of a new theme. If there are any other questions that you have as it relates to that topic, things that you're curious about, um, by all means, like find me or email the church, and that, that can be sent to me. Um, and uh, I can respond in print, or if you're here at church, just come and find me, and, um, because there's a lot more to be said, uh, and, and that I think can be said about not only that issue in terms of understanding it, but then particularly just, again, how to try to relate well to people um, in the coming days on it. So what I'd like to do tonight is actually talk about the theme of... benefits or the impact of Christianity on the world. Um, it's fairly common among many to kind of adhere to the idea that religion is toxic. Religion and Christianity in particular, uh, potentially among others, but Christianity, for instance, um, is the one we'll discuss tonight because that's obviously what we believe. And um, that it leads to nothing but violence, war, death, hate. We'd be better off without religion. <laughs> the world would be better off with all, uh, without all of the damage and destruction that religion has supposedly produced. Um, there's actually many who have voiced that opinion to me. I don't think it's super uncommon. Um, and I think it's an issue that is worth dealing with and I think worth addressing and so that's what I'd like to do tonight. I'd like to work through five things that Christianity has done to impact the world. Five important and I believe positive, I think we'd all agree, and I, quite frankly, I think even someone who's a non-believer would agree, are positive impacts on the world as a result of a biblical or Christian worldview. So that's what I'd like to deal with tonight. I want to start... Um, just with a few introductory things, and that's that if you're dealing with that question, I think you certainly have to be pretty honest about the fact that the 20th century was sort of atheism shot, right? And it failed pretty miserably. Atheism was the worldview that undergirded a great many nations, most of them communist, and uh, what you see is far more death and destruction than all of the previous centuries of human civilization combined. When you think about the war that it produced, the death that it produced, 40 to 50 million under Stalin, at least 5 million under Hitler, at least another 70 million under Mao, not to mention Vietnam, not to mention all the other places around the world where we have seen just devastation and slaughter as a result of worldviews that are anti-God. So, in a sense, I think we've tried it. I think there's a case that can be made that taking God out, getting rid of God, um, and belief in God does not necessarily lead to a better society. I think that's something that should be mentioned and, um, and needs to be mentioned. What you find, I think, if you look and see, um, is that there are a great many stories uh, from all around the world, just moving powerful stories about the, 
the good of the Christian worldview and its good impact on people's lives. Now, on an individual personal basis, I think all of us could probably interact with a neighbor or a friend or a coworker or someone who say, listen, man, I don't know that the Christians I know are that much more moral than the non-Christians I know. I mean, Christian over here had an affair. I've never seen this non-Christian person do that. This guy, you know, got caught not paying his taxes, and this guy seems to pay his taxes. On an individual level, there may be times where it seems like Christians really fail to exhibit a moral quality <laughs> that is greater than many of those around them. But when we take broad brushstrokes, broad brushstrokes over societies, over cultures, over people groups, what we find is a pattern uh, and a great many stories, I think, to justify and validate this, that Christianity has a positive impact in the way that people live. I remember reading about the Soviet Union as they began to try to rebuild their society as communism began to fall. And as they began to try to start new towns in different places in the country, they specifically asked for Christians to come and be local government officials, to come and be teachers. Why? Because they're less corrupt. They're less likely to steal. They're more likely to have a moral quality than others. So they knew that. They weren't believers, but they knew Christians had a better chance of being honest, good people than the non-Christians. I remember some years ago coming across an article by a man named Matthew Paris. Matthew Paris <clears throat> is a British man who grew up in Africa. He writes for the Times in, um, in England. And he wrote an article in 2008 that just to me is an incredibly eye-opening um, piece. It's an incredibly honest and vulnerable piece. I, I mean, I, you just don't in encounter the kind of honesty that he expresses in this particular article very often. But basically what Matthew Paris, who identifies himself as an atheist, said is that Africa needs Christianity. Here's the article. I'm going to read you a portion of it. Here's what he said. Missionaries, not aid money, are the solution to Africa's biggest problem, the crushing passivity of the people's mindset. <clears throat> Before Christmas, I returned after 45 years to the country that I knew as a boy, the country of Malawi. And the Times Christmas Appeal includes a small British charity working there. Pump Aid helps rural communities to install a simple pump, letting people keep their village wells sealed and clean. I went to see this work. It inspired me, renewing my flagging faith in development countries, or excuse me, development charities. But traveling in Malawi refreshed another belief too, one I've been trying to banish all my life, but an observation I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. That's a very honest sentence from an atheist. And here he says, now a confirmed atheist, I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa. Sharply distinct from the work of secular charity projects, government projects, and international aid efforts, these alone will not do. 
Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. I used to avoid this truth by applauding, as you can, the practical work of mission churches in Africa. So as to say, like, I don't care what you believe, you do good work. <laughs> so he's trying to detach what they believe, essentially, from the good work that they do. It's a pity, I would say, that salvation is part of the package. But Christians, black and white, working in Africa, do heal the sick, do teach people to read and write, and only the severest kind of secularist could see a mission hospital or school and say the world would be better without it. I would allow that if faith was needed to motivate missionaries to help, then fine. But what counted was the help, not the faith. But this doesn't fit the facts. Faith does more than support the missionary. It is also transferred to his flock. This is the effect that matters so immensely and which I cannot help observing. First, then, the observation. We had friends who were missionaries, and as a child, I stayed often with them. I also stayed, along with my little brother, in a traditional rural African village. In the city, we had working for us Africans who had converted and were strong believers. The Christians were always different. Far from having cowed or confined its converts, their faith appeared to have liberated and relaxed them. There was a liveliness, a curiosity, an engagement with the world, a directness in their dealings with others that seemed to be missing in traditional African life. They stood tall. That's fascinating coming from a guy who identifies as an atheist, isn't it? But honest. I just have immense respect for someone who would write something that honest. He wrote that in 2008. I don't know if anyone would publish it in 2021 or not. But it was published in 2008 in the Times in England. A revealing commentary from an atheist about the good that Christianity brings to the people in the places that he grew up. Stories like that are common, not only in Africa, but in Asia, and in Russia, and in Europe, and in other places where we see the benefit of Christian morality and Christian ethics. I believe that the Christian ethical system, what the Bible teaches about how we should live morally and ethically, is superior to every other system. Why? Because when we live in accordance with God's design, we flourish. We flourish. Now, this doesn't mean that we might find, not find some good principles in some other religions. I know some people that are Buddhists, that their lives have gotten better, they do some good things. I think we can acknowledge that some of the principles they're building their life on and living by are, are good. They align with what we would think. That doesn't mean that their, their religion leads to God. doesn't mean we believe all the same things. But they have believed some things and aligned their life with some moral principles that are good, that they are. They'll never be able to be a 10, so to speak, only in Christ only in accordance with God's word can we get to a 10. Maybe it'll be a 5 or a 6, but they'll never be a 10. So we recognize that what God has revealed in Scripture is from him, and it is perfect, and it, it is what we should align our life with. And what Christianity teaches is superior to every other system that's out there. I believe that firmly. And so as we align our life with scriptural teaching and with the way that the Bible gives us for how we should live as human beings what we find is that it leads to good. It leads to flourishing among humanity. So 
I want to talk about five particular points tonight that I think are ways that Christianity has positively impacted the world around us. Here's the first, sanctity of life. Many of these things that we're going to look at tonight are things that we just kind of assume and take for granted. We've always sort of been a part of a world where these are the ways that we've sort of looked at life, um, moral principles that have been a part of the foundation of the society that we've grown up in in a lot of ways. Not that some of those are not deteriorating before our very eyes um, today. But it's hard for us to imagine a world where this was not the way that people lived. And yet, when Jesus comes on the scene in the Greco-Roman period that he comes to earth, what we find is things were radically different at that time under Greco-Roman influence than they are and, that, and as they have been, really, for almost 2,000 years since, things were radically different, radically different. Roman and Greek societies did not believe that life was precious and that we treat all life with a sacredness. It was not uncommon in Roman households. Uh, infanticide was rampant. It was not uncommon in Roman households for a father, when a baby was born, to have that baby brought before him have it presented to him, and if he found any defect or found any reason that he did not want that child, he could turn his back, and that child would then be discarded. What many people would do is they would simply put that child outside the door of their home, and they would let wild dogs that come during the night to come in and to take that baby away and to eat it what they would do. This was very common in, Greco, in, in Greek society as well, particularly with young women. <clears throat> um, there's one sort of ancient document that, um, that we possess that shows that there was a period in Greek life where they examined 600 Greek families, and only 2% of those Greek families had more than one girl in their family, which meant what? Which means we get rid of them. We get rid of them. Early Christians didn't believe that. In fact, early Christians, even in Rome, during heavy persecution, while they were hiding in the catacombs, would come out, of the, out from the, the catacombs at night, and they would walk the streets, and they would find those children. They would rescue them, and they would take them back into the catacombs with them, and they would raise them. Not all life was precious in the world that Christianity was birthed into. Christianity made a tremendous impact on the world around them by valuing life, by believing all of it comes from God, and our job is to protect it and preserve it and fight for it from the second that it starts to the second that it ends. So they would rescue babies that were thrown out, unwanted babies by Roman households. Clement of Alexandria, a second century bishop. Alexandria was a city in Egypt. At one point, he came out and condemned the Romans for saving birds but abandoning their children. How much have we really changed? I remember a quote by a, a British a British, uh, a British author and, and, and voice from the 1900s named G.K. Chesterton, and he said this. He said, where there is the killing of babies, there is the worship of animals. Where there is the killing of babies, 
there is the worship of animals. Why? Because I think we as human beings, we flip-flop God's order. Natural to who we are. We flip-flop God's design. So Clement, a bishop in the second century, called the Romans out for what they did. We know that not just infanticide, but suicide. Suicide was something that was looked at by many, even at that time, as something noble, something good, something positive. And Christianity stood against that. Taught that, no, that is not what God would have you do. And they, uh, um, and they encourage people to not commit suicide. Even if you look beyond Greco-Roman culture, the first and second century, if you come over to the Americas as, as, as Europe began to make their way into the Western Hemisphere, and they began to encounter the human sacrifice of the Aztec and the Inca people. If you read stories of what took place in those cultures, it's hard to read. <laughs> it is brutal. Um, not only that, but even many of those people, as a part of their religious ritual, would cannibalize the bodies that they were cutting open and the rituals that they would perform in the midst of that whole ceremony. Um, it was disturbing to the conquistadors and many of the others that were there. They, those were not super moral people anyways, and yet it was disturbing even to many of them. Of course, Christianity came and sought to respond to those things, to condemn them, and to teach people a different way. The world has not always valued life the way the Bible teaches us to value life. Christianity did that. Here's number two, the elevation of women. I know it's easy, it's very common if you're looking at the world and life through the lens of radical feminism, radical feminism, to just look at religion, to look at Christianity, many other religions, it's just oppressive to women. They read everything sort of through that lens. They read the Bible through that lens. They prove text and superficially read passages. We're going to look at one of them tonight here in just a moment as being anti-women, oppressive to women. Just treat women like a piece of property, not as a human being. In reality, Christianity was way ahead of their time in affording dignity to women that the cultures that they were in at that time did not afford to women. Uh, we see that throughout scripture. We know many of Jesus' follow, earliest followers were women. We know that, that Christianity had an impact among women in the early days of the church. We find lots of women mentioned in the New Testament as being active in the life of the early church. Um, <clears throat> and so they brought dignity and respect to women that otherwise hadn't been there. A common text in the book of 1 Timothy that people quote all the time, this isn't the main one we're going to look at tonight, that talks about women should learn in silence. We've completely missed what that passage actually means. If you go back, what you'll find is that the language that Paul used there of women should learn in submission and silence is actually the exact language that was used in Jewish rabbinical school for the way that Jewish boys were supposed to conduct themselves in rabbinical school as they were children. So by Paul using that language for women, he's actually allowing women in to what the Jews only allowed the boys into. So it's actually not anti-women, it's very pro-women. Paul was saying, no, women have access to what the Jews would have only allowed the boys to have access to. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 21.
Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 10 through 14. says this. Maybe some of you have read this passage before. Maybe some of you have had trouble understanding exactly how to interpret this passage. Well, I'm going to offer you something tonight and uh, do with it what you will. Maybe you'll agree, maybe you won't. But here's what it says in Deuteronomy 21, 10 through 14. When you go out to war against your enemies and the Lord your God gives them into your hand and you take them captive and you see among the captives a beautiful woman and you desire to take her to be your wife, and you bring her home to your house, you shall, you shall shave her head and pare her nails, and she shall take off the clothes in which she was captured, and she'll remain in your house and lament her father and her mother a full month. And after that, you may go into her and be her husband, and she shall be your wife. But if you no longer delight in her, you shall let her go when, where she wants. But you shall not sell her for money, nor shall you treat her as a slave, since you have humiliated her. Now, on the surface, we would read that and think, man, that is nothing more than treating women like a piece of property. And in reality, this is an amazing provision and protection of God on women captured in the midst of battle. While it looks like this is just a man deciding, me man, you woman, me take you, take her home, and then deciding, ah, I don't want her anymore, I'll just throw her out, is really not that at all. See, when it came to the war and the spoils of war, when you conquered a people, you were free, essentially, to take that woman and do whatever you wanted to do to her in that moment, whether it be rape, whether it take her with you, whatever those things. But what we see here is that God says, let's say you see someone that's a part of that conquered city or that conquered people, you are not to do anything with her in that moment. If you're really interested in her, and you're really potentially interested in bringing this woman into your home and making her your wife, then you will take her home and you will let her live there for 30 days. When he talks about the shaving the head and the paring the nails and changing the clothes and then mourning her family, all of that is sort of associated with her leaving behind her old pagan custom and tradition in an effort to prepare herself for becoming part of a now Jewish household. So it's not that that's some way of just like diminishing her or humiliating her. It's a way of preparing her to enter into, to be a part of a Jewish household and to leave the pagan religion that she was a part of previously behind. But let's say, as God says here, you decide after that 30 days, you are not free to take her and do what you want with her sexually in the midst of that time. You're supposed to marry her. And if you decide to marry her, then go through with it after those 30 days. If you decide you don't want to marry her, that in that moment that you took her, it was nothing more than a moment of lust and a moment of passion, and you decide not to keep her as your wife, then you are not to keep her as a slave. You, and you are not to sell her as a slave. You are to give her what she needs to be a free individual and go where she wants. That's what God's saying. That was radically counter-cultural in that day. This is God trying to protect some of the most vulnerable people in that kind of situation at that time. This is God being, being good. 
This is a statement about the dignity of women that we don't see anywhere else in the world at that time. God said, you don't take women in the heat of the moment. You don't rape her and make her your own just because you conquered that people. If you choose to marry her, which you can do if you would like, then you'll do it the right way. And you will prepare yourself and you will prepare, yourself, prepare her to come in and be a part of your household and marriage. But if you decide not to do that, she is free to go where she wants as a free person. The Bible's full of passages that show us the dignity of women, the respect of women. Again, this doesn't diminish the fact that God has appointed the man in a position of headship over the woman. I'm not looking to get into a long conversation about all of this. Nevertheless, I do believe God appoints the husband as as in a position of headship over the family, not so that he can do whatever he wants, but so that he can use that headship in order to provide for and care for his wife and children. That leadership is not for his own benefit, it's for the benefit of those he is called to lead, okay? But that we see differing roles in scripture between the role of the man and the role of the woman. So yes, in that sense, we see distinctions between what God calls a husband to do, what God calls a wife to do, the role of men, not only in the home, but maybe even in society versus the role of women. I'm not saying that women can't work. I have a wife that works. I'm glad she does. But we certainly see that distinction in Scripture. So it doesn't diminish that distinction by recognizing equal dignity. Equal dignity between men and women. So Christianity brought with it an elevation of women that quite frankly had not been seen prior to that. We see that in the Old Testament as the Old Testament confronts Canaanite culture, Babylonian culture, Assyrian culture, Persian culture, all of those things. And we certainly see as the New Testament confronts Greco-Roman culture and even Jewish culture at that time. Here's point number three. I gotta move pretty quick. Charity. Caring for the needy. Caring for the needy. Let me read you a couple quotes from some famous Roman philosophers. This was a guy named Plato. If you paid attention in philosophy class at all, at all, hopefully you caught that guy's name. Here's what he said. He said, a poor man who is no longer able to work because of his sickness should be left to die. Here's what a Roman philosopher named Plautus in the second century said. You do a beggar bad service by giving him food and drink. You, love what you, you lose what you give and prolong his life for more misery. That was the Roman way. I earned that. It's not yours. Jesus taught something radically different than that. Did you know that 60%, a little bit over 60% of all charitable giving in the United States today comes from faith-based organizations? You know, I look broadly at our culture, and of course, I mean, I realize it's a little bit of a rhetorical question because I think I know their answer, but part of me wants to look at the broader culture and say, okay, you don't like our view on things like moral and sexual ethics, but you sure like the way that we take care of the poor people in this country, the way that we try to feed the homeless the way that we try to shelter those who need, the way that we lead the way in foster care and adoption. That's a part of what comes with what we believe as Christians, ways that we impact the world around us, the way that we impact those around us for good. There's a really great book called The Cities of God. 
by a professor named Rodney Stark from Baylor. He is not a Christian. He is an agnostic, at least last I know. He was not a Christian. Um, And he wrote this book, and what he does is he does sort of a historical study of the 30 largest cities in the Roman Empire over the first three centuries, first, second, and third centuries. And he is trying to answer the question, how did Christianity spread so fast at that time? And here's what he found. He found it spread so fast because it spread in cities. In fact, the word pagan is a word that means to be rural. Christianity became associated with cities so much so at that time that to be pagan, it meant what? It meant to be rural, so to speak, to be non-Christian in that way. It took root in the cities. How so? Here's how. Here's what he found. Is that the Romans were really brilliant when they came up with these really creative and ingenious ways to transport water from one place to the next. Aqueducts, I remember sixth grade social studies books, you know, all the pictures of the Roman aqueducts and everything. I see all those, yep. Well, here's what they were not so brilliant about. They were great about how to get water from one place to the next, but they weren't great about what to do with it when it got there. And water that sits does what? It stagnates, and it breeds bacteria and illness. And in ancient cities, they were not like cities today, where we have a lot of space and land. You may not feel like you have a lot of land on your property. You got a lot of land. But in ancient cities where people lived on top of each other, where water sources were poor and water sat, it bred disease and infection. Dead bodies would be left in the street. Well, what happens when water runs by that dead body? And so they became breeding grounds for plague and death. And in the midst of some sort of plague starting in a city, you know what would happen? Most people would do what I think most of us would be inclined to do, which is what? Which is to get out of there. But you know what? The Christians wouldn't leave. They would stay. And they would take care of the people that were sick. Many of them would die. Many of them wouldn't. But they would take care of the people that were sick. We're ready for heaven. They aren't, right? And so what happened was cities became Christian really fast because everyone else left, but the Christians stayed. And they took care of people, and the people that the Christians took care of were powerfully impacted by the testimony of these people. Why in the world would they do these things at risk to themselves? And they became Christians too. So much so that by the fourth century, there was an emperor at that time named Julian who wanted to revive sort of Roman pagan religion in the empire at that time. And there's a letter that we have that he wrote to a friend in which he said this. Again, just, I mean, honest statement from this ancient Roman emperor. He said, I would like to do this. The problem is there is no way for our religion to inspire the kind of love that Christianity inspires. I just don't think it will work. I just don't think it'll work. Listen, Christianity has positively impacted the world around it because Jesus taught us to care about the needs of those around us. That what we have is not ours, We heard this message a few weeks ago from the Water's Edge team, right? That it's not ours. We're just stewards. We're responsible to steward it well as God's people. 
and to use it for the things he wants it used for. And so we care for the needs of the helpless and we care for the needs of the most vulnerable amongst us and we take care of the sick and we feed the poor because Jesus has told us to do that. Greco-Roman society didn't value that, but Jesus did and he's taught his people to live that way. Charity, caring for the needy. I've got to give you two points in two minutes. Number four, abolishing slavery, such a sensitive topic, pretty volatile and provocative topic, even in today, in the midst of a whole lot of racial tension going on around us. But what we find is that Christianity has a long history of standing against the abuse and mistreatment of other people through something like slavery. In the early church, we have stories of many bishops overseeing masters relinquishing and liberating their slaves. So there are stories of bishops in the 2nd, 3rd, 4th, 5th century who report thousands of examples, thousands of accounts of people who, uh, who, who might have owned slaves who after becoming Christians, dealing with the teachings of Jesus said, it's time for me to let them be free. William Wilberforce, if you're not familiar with this story, you should be. There's a movie that came out probably about 10 years ago now called Amazing Grace. It's a great movie. There's an autobiography, not an autobiography, but there's a biography about William Wilberforce that's out there as well that's recent. Powerful story of a British man who spent his life trying to end the British slave trade. And by the end of his life, he did. That was a Christian. There's a moving scene in that movie where at the early part of his life, he's trying to decide what to do with his life. Do I go into ministry or do I go into politics? And he had people pulling him into ministry and he had people pulling him into politics. And so he has this late night meeting with this group of people who are trying to help convince him to go into politics and, um, and to really be a champion for their cause of ending slavery. And one of them looks at him and says, you're struggling with whether to serve God... <laughs> Or to go into government, what if you could do both? What if you could do both at the same time? Of course he did. Lots of examples of others, even in America, there were certainly pastors and others, maybe in the South, who adhered to sort of what was culturally popular and acceptable at that time. But we know that many stood against that. Charles Torrey, the father of the Underground Railroad, was responsible for as many as 100,000 slaves being liberated over the course of his life. Why? Because Christians who had the courage to stand on what the Bible taught stood against these kinds of things that the Bible would condemn. Christianity had an impact in changing slavery in the world. Number five, the source of modern science. There would be no modern science without Christianity, quite frankly. Um, I remember talking with Lynn here just a few weeks ago about this. The fact that Science is the study of the natural world, and you can't study the natural world effectively unless it is based on some kind of fixed law. But naturalism, the idea, the worldview underneath atheism, believes there is no fixed law from a creator. There's only chaos. You can't study a world that's in in the midst of chaos, not in any reliable way. Christi- or, excuse me, modern science exists today in large part because of the Christian worldview, and it was Christians who led us down the road of <clears throat> beginning to pursue 
what we know today as modern science. I think a lot of the conflict lies not in that religion and science are opposed, it's that typically people associate with religion miracles. And so miracles, which are supernatural acts, have no natural explanation. Science seeks natural explanation, so there seems to be this tension or conflict between religion, which believes in miracles, and science, which only seeks natural answers. But in reality, those two things are not completely incompatible at all. And studying the natural world, just because miraculous things happen, doesn't mean that we can't study the natural world and understand it rightly. In fact, the early fathers of modern science believed that, listen, God would have us do this, to know and see and understand the world that God created. And so Christianity was a part of contributing to the birth and rise of modern science. We could talk about a lot of other things, education, hospitals, limited government, a lot of other things, but here's reality. Listen, have people done some bad things in the name of Jesus? Yes. Would Jesus agree or support those things or affirm those things? Absolutely not. Have good people done wrong things at times as well? Sure. But is all religion toxic? Christianity toxic? Is it nothing, is it nothing but bad things for human civilization? I would argue no, that's not the case. Christianity and what God has given us in Scripture shows us a better way a way that leads to human flourishing. And the more aligned we are with it, the more we will flourish as human beings. Not simply as Christians, but all of us as human beings. Let's pray. God, thank you that you have revealed to us your way. It's a better way. And God, I pray that we would seek to live in accordance with it. I pray that our lives would be a living, breathing testimony to the goodness and the rightness of how you have taught us to live. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.